morning and welcome to Rising. Thank you for joining us on this Monday. Brianna Joy Gray is off today, so I'm joined remotely by Jessica Burbank. Nice to see you, Jessica. Good to be with you, Ravi. What's the news? Well, let's get right into it. Uh, we've got a major development on Israel-Palestine. New Speaker of the House Mike Johnson has confirmed to NBC News yesterday that he will bring a bill funding military and humanitarian aid for Israel and Israel alone this week, undermining the Biden administration's plans to couple funding for Israel with Ukraine. Now, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene has come out against Johnson's bill, writing on Twitter just this morning, I will be voting no on all funding packages for the Ukraine war, as I have from the beginning, and now the Israel war. We have had over 10 million people illegally cross our border since Biden took office, and we're over $33 trillion in debt, with many major problems afflicting Americans. The United States government needs to focus on spending Americans' hard-earned tax dollars on our own country and needs to serve the American people, not the rest of the world. This comes as nearly three dozen trucks carrying aid and humanitarian supplies entered the Gaza Strip yesterday. The Palestinian Health Ministry now claims death tolls in the region have topped 8,000. Israeli tanks and infantry continue to prepare for what Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called the IDF's second stage in its war against Hamas. Airstrikes continued to pummel the region over the weekend even after a brief and total communications blackout left the people of Gaza without any cell phone or internet service for 34 hours. Several Western media outlets have now reported that per U.S. intelligence, Israel intentionally shut off Gazans' access to the outside world. It was only at the Biden administration's private urging, according to the Washington Post, did Israel reverse the blackout. One official told the Post, quote, we made it clear they had to be turned back on and need to stay back on, end quote. Executive Director of the Quincy Institute, Dr. Shrita Parsi, hit out at President Biden over the reporting, tweeting, Biden's pressure on Israel isn't to prevent mass killings and war crimes. Rather, its pressure appears aimed at keeping Israel's bombings and war crimes at a tolerable level to keep the backlash against Israel manageable. Biden is doing war crimes management for Netanyahu. Over the weekend, thousands of people all over the world, uh, in, from Central Park to London, took to local public spaces and streets to call for an immediate ceasefire in the region. The United Nations resolution urging ceasefires passed, with 120 member nations voting yes and 14 voting no. Topping the nose was, of course, the United States. So many developments obviously taking place over the weekend. Um, I, I find it interesting that our new speaker, uh, Mike Johnson, uh, you know, not going along with the Biden plan to combine all the spending into one package, which is how um, President Biden was seeking to arrange for the Ukraine continued funding in addition to Israel. Mike Johnson says there will be a vote just on Israel funding, and it's I think it remains to be seen how many Republicans are even on board with that. I, I suggest, I suspect there's enough of them, but someone like a Marjorie Taylor Greene, sick of spending um, American tax dollars overseas at every turn, says, no, I'm not on board. 
Yeah, I think it makes sense that there's a growing group of members of Congress that are not supportive of the amount of military assistance, frankly, going to Israel and to Ukraine. And when you look at what the American public believes, it seems that the majority of people don't support aid going to Israel. Only 41% support more weapons going to Israel. That's precisely what military aid would be. So I'm surprised it's not even more members of Congress. We only had nine members of Congress vote against Mike Johnson's initial resolution as soon as he got into office vowing their support for Israel. So I think things will change as increasing public sentiments go in the opposite direction. But I think Percy makes a good point there that their explicit intent media wise is to make this manageable, make it so that they convince the American people uh, that Israel needs American support and that U.S. military assistance is justified. They're fighting up against a lot of posts on social media where people get to see precisely what's going on in Gaza, which is absolutely why Israel shut down the communications for 24 or sorry, 34 hours uh, while they had this huge bombing campaign in Gaza. And so it's really difficult PR for the Biden administration because they're now going to have to justify in the opposite direction of where public opinion is right now. It's a position they've never been in in Israel. And so I think more members of Congress are getting pressured by their constituents to kind of draw back U.S. support for Israel because of how gruesome this campaign of bombing has been against Gaza and as the ground mission commences. Yeah, I mean, I think people are seeing these images and obviously, you know, bemoaning the innocent lives being lost um, that have been lost on both sides of the conflict, um, you know, wanting, I, I, th I think, the American people want to, you know, condemn what has obviously had the terrorist attack that happened to Israel. But at some point, it becomes we're going to we're going to have to fund. We're funding this the the, the attacks, the, the military attacks. Then we're going to have to fund the cleanup and the and the you know the humanitarian aid afterwards. Like we, we're going to destroy something. Then we're going to pay. To, we're paying to destroy it. We're paying to build it. You know, why is that money not being spent at home? Is this a a uh, relatable U.S. national security goal, and does it risk us being drawn into a broader conflict? So what do you make of President Biden's efforts so far to, it seems like, talk Netanyahu out of more extreme action, but obviously has not prevented you know, the, the, the invasion we're seeing, the bombing campaign we're seeing? Yeah, I think a lot of the human rights violations that Netanyahu has committed and the Netanyahu administration and the IDF has committed since October 7th are indefensible. And so Biden's in an impossible position being a continued ally of Israel because there's already so much that the public knows about that's been reported on by the United Nations, by international groups, even by U.S. mainstream media. So the Biden administration in defending Israel, they're in an impossible position. I think now they have to take the really honest approach one that Biden used to take back in the 80s when he was a senator and say, listen, I get that you guys don't like what Israel is doing, but this is a, a choice we're willing to, to make. We're willing to commit war crimes in the region so that U.S. interests can be protected in the Middle East. That's precisely the decision they're making without saying it. And so if Biden wants any kind of you know, response from the American people that's favorable, he's going to need to take the path I think of honesty. He has no other choice moving forward here. This is clearly the strategic calculation that the United States military, foreign policy establishment, and administration is taking. It's the calculation that they've made here. And so they're going to need to just tell the American people, listen, it's too late. We've already supported Israel for too long. It's either we quell the discontent with what Israel's doing in the region, or else we're going to have a huge threat against the United States.
United States based on the actions already taken. We're in a point of no return here. That's the position. I think that the Biden administration is taking behind closed doors. And if they want the support of the American people, they need to take it publicly. They can say, listen, we've now decided to reverse our decision and support a humanitarian pause. Aid has reached Gaza. 33 trucks reportedly reached Gaza on Sunday, but they're used to getting uh, 500 trucks a day, 33 trucks of aid into Gaza between October uh, 7th and the 21st is not enough when they're used to getting 500 a day. Six hospitals have closed down. 10 hospitals have people sheltering in them beyond having surgeries. People are getting C-sections without any anesthesia. The situation there is dire and the United States at least needs to support giving more humanitarian aid to the people in Gaza and to be honest about what their strategic interests are in the region if they want any kind of support from the American people. Well, I mean, I feel the same way about the humanitarian aid as I do as the military aid, that it's not, the American taxpayer has been generous enough and it's not our obligation. I think if President Biden, if the federal government were to say, we support Israel's right to root out the terrorist group that just shot people in their cars and took people prisoner at a music festival, and it is obvious that they're going to try to dismantle and destroy this terrorist group. We hope that it involves as few civilian deaths as possible. A lot of the policies they're pursuing, we don't support, but we're not, it's their problem, it's not our problem. Um, the federal government of the United States, the Biden administration's first task is to make America a more livable place for the taxpaying citizens of this country, not to send their dollars to all other foreign battlefields. If, if it was, if we were you know, just trying to prevent humanitarian crises all over the country, that would involve having conflicts with China and Russia, and we'd be more involved in Africa, and it's just not the job of the American government, so we will not fund this effort anymore. Now, I think people are uh, under, will, will be upset about the, the double standard. The amount of support, may, Israel has gotten more support than any other country for the last 50, 60 years. Um, I, don't, I don't know that, that that's... The, uh, there, there's, I think there's a lot of sympathy for what Israel is going for, what it's suffered, and also sympathy, of course, for the uh, Palestinians caught in the middle. But the, I think the most popular thing would be not, not to like oppose, not to give more humanitarian aid instead of more military aid, but to just leave this other country to handle this region to solve its own problems and not say it's America's responsibility. Yeah, I don't think the American people need to give any more tax dollars towards this issue. Uh, they could do it absolutely for free. All it would take is the United States not vetoing the humanitarian pause on the floor of the Security Council of the United Nations. They're the lone vote in the Security Council vetoing a humanitarian pause so that aid could access the Gazans. We don't need to even give them any American dollars. We just need the United States to stop supporting Israel's war campaign against the people in Gaza, killing innocent civilians with 6,000 bombs and 4,000 tons of explosives at the point that they had this vote. All they had to do was have their ambassador simply not raise their hands. It would be entirely free for the American people. But the Biden administration wouldn't even have their representative do that. And I think that's absurd. It would just take the United States to stop supporting Israel's killing of people in Gaza for aid to reach them. All they had to do was say, yes, a humanitarian pause, a temporary ceasefire, it would be entirely free. And so I think it's ridiculous. They funded uh, Israel's occupation of Palestine with $158 billion over the years. We're not giving any aid to Gazans. We're, we're proposing giving aid to Israel and only Israel, military aid and humanitarian aid, which is absurd because Israel has caused, caused a humanitarian crisis. They don't need humanitarian aid at this point in time. They also don't need military aid. And so it's not that the Palestinians are stuck 
stuck in the middle of this. It's that we've had Israel occupy the land of Palestine and expand their state into Palestinian territory beyond international agreements. And the United States has supported Israel every step of the way. And so it's time for the United States to reckon with that history. And I think that means calling for a ceasefire now just to allow the humanitarian aid to come from the international organizations into Gaza at this point. And I think we're putting the American people at more risk by giving more military aid to Israel after all of their human rights violations. The Leahy Act, which is the United States law, prohibits the United States from giving funding to any organization, military group or government that is committing human rights violations. So we're breaking our own law if we continue to fund Israel after they have admitted to doing collective punishment and various other war crimes in Gaza, admitted to killing citizens. And so we're breaking our own laws if we vote to fund more military aid to Israel. And Mike Johnson's going to have to deal with that. So is the Biden administration. Hamas is, uh, there's been reporting, it has stockpiled um, a lot of that very, the humanitarian aid that makes it through. Many of the supplies are being held by, they're captured by Hamas and held by Hamas. So do you, do you discount uh, entirely the idea that Israel might have that allowing through just trucks of this, these supplies, these supplies will not reach the innocent people of Gaza who are every much as victims of uh, Hamas as anyone else who, you know, are are not Hamas is not focused on providing any of these resources or services um, to the people ostensibly under its rule. So a lot of people living in Gaza are just 18 years old. The last time they held elections was about 2007. A lot of these people were not old enough to vote or participate in the elections. Now, Hamas is the official governing body of Gaza. They are the group that got elected into office, and many of the people that rely on them to get supplies didn't vote for them. Nevertheless, they are the governing body, so of course they're going to be the ones redistributing a part of the humanitarian aid if it's directly delivered to them. Now, there's Doctors Without Borders operating in Gaza. There's the the office of uh, the Center for or Humanitarian Assistance uh, coming from the United Nations that's operating there. There's a lot of independent international groups that are operating there that can directly get supplies independent from the official government in the region. And so there are 10 hospitals still operating, holding refugees right now. Six of them had to shut down because of lack of fuel and water. They can deliver the supplies directly to the hospitals. Uh, the idea that Hamas would take the supplies, and that's a reason why we shouldn't have a ceasefire, that's a reason humanitarian aid should not be allowed to enter the Gaza Strip, it's absurd. They could absolutely go through Doctors Without Borders and all of the international agencies that are operating in Gaza and have been for quite some time. So that's not a concern that I have, and that absolutely shouldn't prevent people from bringing humanitarian aid into Gaza or supporting a ceasefire for Gaza. But shouldn't Hamas use the humanitarian aid that it has, or the, the, the supplies that it has stockpiled, that it's not giving to the people that it ostensibly governs? Um, isn't it their responsibility as the I mean, they're not, as you, I agree with you, you're right to point out they're not, the, they, the government lacks legitimacy, they suspended elections, it's a dictatorship, um, but they, they have resources that they've been stockpiling, keeping from the people. It, why is it not their responsibility to, to, to provide the food and shelter and water and medical supplies that they have in their possession? I think the, the UNRA, the United Nations agency that's been providing aid to the Palestinians for quite some time, would be the responsible body for providing humanitarian aid now. Gazans directly go to their warehouses and receive the materials and supplies, food, fuel, and water that they would need. So I don't think it's an, an issue that if Hamas has some of the materials that have been given to the Gazans, uh, that that means that we shouldn't support more humanitarian aid for the many civilians, 1.1 million, that are living in the Gaza Strip. 
uh, northern Gazans can't even get out because they don't have the fuel to drive cars to exit. Many people are trapped in hospitals because they're carpet bombing the country. We need a humanitarian pause so that people can get out. The Israel military is giving these announcements in English for a largely Arabic-speaking population, saying that they're going to complete a ground mission in northern Gaza and everyone needs to leave, and then bombing the exit, shutting off communication so no one has a way of traveling to get out or communicating with anyone to receive the announcement that's not even in the language they speak. So I think it's ridiculous to assume that any aid that goes to these people that are struggling, that are experiencing a blockade from the Israeli government, uh, that that is a reason why we can't support them and give them the food, fuel, and water that they desperately need. 50,000 women in Gaza are pregnant. 5,500 are expected to give birth in the next month. Because there's a chance that some people in Hamas might get some of that humanitarian aid, that's a reason we shouldn't help those people. I think that's just a ridiculous argument to make, especially when so many Gazans get their aid directly from these UN agencies and these international groups. So I really think that the Gazans need a humanitarian pause so that they can receive the aid. And also because we've had so much carpet bombing from the Israeli people, they shut off communications for 34 hours hours so that they could bomb people living in the dark who don't even have access to call paramedics or healthcare. The average age of the population, or sorry, the median age in Gaza is 18. Most of these people are children. It's just disgusting what the Israeli government is doing. The least thing we can do is bring humanitarian aid into Gaza. Mm. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. The impeachment of President Biden came one step closer to fruition last Wednesday when Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson got elected speaker. The newly elected speaker told Fox News' Sean Hannity he has receipts. Let's watch. We have the receipts on so much of this now. It's a real problem. That's the reason that we shifted into the impeachment inquiry stage on the president himself, because if, if in fact all the evidence leads to where we believe it will, that's very likely impeachable offenses. You know, that's listed as a cause for impeachment in the Constitution. You know, bribery and, and uh, other high crimes and misdemeanors, bribery is listed there, and, and uh, it looks and smells a lot like that. Now, ex-Speaker Kevin McCarthy had launched an impeachment inquiry in September, but was booted before it wrapped up. Attention turned from Biden's son, Hunter, to himself after signs that Biden was involved in Hunter's business dealings. Asked if considering a subpoena of the president's second born, this is what Johnson told Fox's Maria Bartoromo on Sunday. Well, I think that uh, desperate times call for desperate measures, and that perhaps is, is overdue. We've not made a full decision yet. I'm, I'm uh, counseling with the uh, attorneys involved on all of this to see what the contours of. I'm, I'm an attorney myself, so I speak the language. Um, we're trying to move forward on some of this very aggressively. I think the American people are owed these answers, and I think... Uh, our suspicions about all this, um, the evidence that we've gathered so far, as you, as you, as you know, uh, is, is affirming what many of us feared may be the worst. And, you know, as Jamie Comer likes to say, bank records don't lie. White House spokesperson Ian Sams has denied wrongdoing by the president, uh, posting on X that it is a de desperate attempt from the GOP. Rising has reached out for a comment via email. So Mike Johnson is getting right in the mix, first as his speaker. I think one of his biggest faux pas so far 
has been saying that we should support Israel. We know he's a Christian, but because the Bible says we must as Christians, this is, you know, getting right at the heart of the separation of church and state. Is this not uh, an impeachable offense for him as Speaker of the House? You promised to uphold the Constitution, and he very directly says that he's governing in the direction of what the Bible tells him to do. You can have your personal beliefs, but this sounds like he's not separating his personal beliefs from how he's governing here. Well, no, I don't think that's an impeachable offense. I think he has, you know, every right to believe um, policy should be guided by what his beliefs are, which are very Christian beliefs. You might think the policy outcomes that he favors based on those beliefs are, are bad. I mean, you have to just defeat them at the ballot box if that's the case, or if he does something, or if they put through a law that it violates the Constitution, then it gets um, struck down pending interpretation by the Supreme Court. I mean, what's impeachable is the potential or alleged criminal activity that is going on with the Bidens. And again, I don't want to you know, get ahead of my skis here. We have a lot of more investigating to go. But what we have learned so far is just not, does not match what, what President Biden said himself about about the situation with his son, which was that he had no knowledge of Hunter's business dealings whatsoever. And we now know he was on multiple calls with Hunter Biden while business associates were in the room, while people who were who were representing U Ukrainian and other financial interests at a time where Joe Biden was vice president and was the, was the policymaker, senior policymaker in the uh, administration most responsible for Ukraine policy. I mean, it's no accident, right, that they cut Hunter Biden's salary in half when Joe Biden stopped being the relevant point man on that issue. So I think there's a lot of concern here. Now, also, it is the case that the GOP has overpromised and failed to deliver on all sorts of allegations against um Biden and Obama before him and, and you know, all sorts of things, actually, actually proving the weaponization of the federal government, has. there's been some stumbling on the Republican side. So I think it remains to be seen whether Mike Johnson will do a better job of this than, than his predecessors. And, you know, there's a lot of indicting the process going on, and I think that's fair because the process has been very suspect. We learned last week that, um, that I think, according to to Comer, that there are, no, uh, according to Senator Chuck Grassley, that there were all these FBI um, uh, uh, evidence, uh, uh, witnesses, uh, people who reported information about Joe Biden to uh, various FBI branches, and it wasn't centrally coordinated, and it was shut down on the recommendation that, well, this is probably Russian disinformation, which we know is, is a lame and invalid excuse to shut down all sorts of legitimate speech and activity. So that's a long way of saying I think the investigation is, is very legitimate, and I'm interested to see where it leads, although um, I don't totally trust Republicans to, uh, to land it because there's been failures of execution many, many times in the past. Yeah, I think the investigation is definitely legitimate. I think that we've had many administrations in the past use their power and influence to leverage, you know, the accumulation of profit from multinational corporations. That's nothing, nothing new. But I think that you're right, that the GOP has consistently said that they have the evidence that it comes out that they just don't, especially as it pertains to this impeachment inquiry. And Mike Johnson also personally, unfortunately, has a pattern of behavior here. The 2020 election, he said, was stolen. He was leading the effort uh, of the 2020 election misinformation, saying that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. So he has a habit of claiming things and claiming there's evidence where there's not. So I'm not super optimistic when he says he has the receipts 
weird that a middle-aged man is using very Gen Z language, but he says he has the receipts here. He says he has the evidence. I don't think he does. I think it's going to be very difficult for them to actually get their hands on the bank statements where you see the transfer of funds from the accounts in Burisma to the Biden's accounts, specifically to Joe Biden's accounts, or some concrete evidence that Joe Biden made a deal here. Uh, I don't think the American people or a court of law think it's enough that it looks and smells like a thing. I think we all know from the pattern of behavior of prior administrations that this goes on. But I think in order to impeach Joe Biden, they're going to need more concrete evidence than just it looks and smells like bribery, as Mike Johnson said here. So I'm curious to see what the receipts are, though. Every now and then, it's giving Benghazi energy. Did I say that right? Um, so, we'll, but you know, it, the, I mean, the major, uh, uh, some of this stuff has been borne out in, in terms of uh, the plea deal they tried to offer Hunter Biden that would essentially immunize him from further prosecution, from looking into these the things we're all concerned about, including the potential collusion and involvement of his father. They were going to strike that possibility from the record of actually looking at that. That's how soft the prosecution of, of him was. It was something the judge noticed as they were going through with it. The, the ostensible adversarial prosecutors who are supposed to be taking this matter seriously were going to let him off on lame, lesser charges and then forbid anyone else from looking into the more serious matters. I mean, you don't have to be like crazy or a conspiracy theorist to think that's really that's really sus. Um, the judge thought it was really suspicious. So it's not it's not just like crazy right wing people who think that. Yeah, no, it's definitely not so. I think a lot of left-wingers are critical of any administration that has children working for multinational corporations. I mean, Burisma in Ukraine to have Hunter Biden working there. And then in the months after Biden, his father, is no longer vice president, you have his salary dipping. I mean, that's pretty clear suggestion, as Mike Johnson would say. It looks and smells like some kind of bribery, some kind of collusion here, some kind of international deal making. Unfortunately, not new. And what I want from the GOP is the same thing that I've always wanted since they started this impeachment inquiry. And if it's that you care so much about corruption and you care so much about the power of the Biden administration and how they might be using it so that they're getting more money from multinational corporations, pass some laws so that they're not allowed to have family members working it on the or serving on the board rather of multinational corporations owning them working in them pass a law as Mike uh, or sorry Matt Gates introduced that members of Congress can't trade stocks ban uh, lobbying contributions to their campaigns there are a lot of things that they could do legislatively to prevent anything like this from happening in the future and have a stopgap where there's an investigation uh, preemptively before someone like Joe Biden gets into public office if they have family members that are serving on the board of multinational corporations. But the GOP doesn't seem very interested in doing that because it seems that this is a, a sole effort to take down Joe Biden. And they don't really care about the corruption that happens at the highest level in pretty much every single presidential administration. So nor, that's really what I'd like Democrats, to see from that. Nor do the Democrats. What was it? Nor we do don't the get Democrats. it from Democrats either. Yeah. No, yeah. absolutely not. That's true. It, it, yeah. Unfortunately, this is very frustrating because I would support and you would support and the vast majority of the American people would support um, strict limits on, yes, for instance, the ability of members of Congress uh, to, to play the stock market while sculpting policies that affect how much those stocks are worth. Seems like a no-brainer. Uh, was famously opposed doing anything about it by uh, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi and tons of people on both the Democratic and Republican side, that, you, you know, you're right that, um, that there's not a, uh, a, a look at 
the wider problem of corruption among our top political officials. That's something that, frustratingly, neither party wants to take on because they're enriched, both sides are enriched by it. And it is true that the Bidens are not nearly, not even close to the first uh, to have this kind of dynamic going on. Of course, all <laughs> look at the Trump family and on and on and on. So that's, uh, that, that's fair, but that shouldn't be used by, and you're not doing this, but you know, Biden people can't use that as an excuse to say, so it's fine, so don't look too closely at us. No one, uh, I don't think the American people uh, will be buying that. And we'll have more rising right after this. Very tragic news. A young German-Israeli woman who was taken hostage by Hamas has been confirmed dead. That's according to Israel's foreign ministry. This is 22-year-old Shani Luke, who was believed to be taken hostage by Hamas after a graphic video circulated on social media showing her semi-naked in the back of a truck surrounded by Hamas militants, some of whom appeared to spit on her seemingly unconscious body. Uh, while she seemed to have a bloody head wound, it was very possible to tell whether she was alive at that point. We won't show you the video, uh, but it is widely available online if you need a reminder. Luke's, Luke's mother, uh, Ricardo Luke, told German broadcaster RTL that Israeli officials said a skull fragment had been identified as her daughter's based on DNA evidence. Luke had been attending a festival near the kibbutz Ram when Hamas militants stormed the area on October 7th, killing more than 260 people. Yeah, so this uh, was a story of, I think, great interest to people because it went very viral, the video footage of her being uh, in the back of that truck. Um, in, it, it did not look like in a very well state. It was actually impossible to tell whether she was still living at that point. Um, the, the image, because of the state she was in and the way the, uh, the militants were gathered around her, it was very evocative of, a, of not just physical violence, but also sexual violence. Whether that was the case is unknown, but there was some some suggestion I saw that, well, maybe she's okay, maybe she's being actually taken to a hospital, maybe they were treating her well. I mean, they shot her or hit her or did something in, in, in the head. Um, so she has not survived. They identified her from a skull fragment, so they've not found the body, but it is given that they found the skull fragment. Apparently, it's impossible for her to still be alive. So just a uh, an example of the brutal atrocity of this uh, terrorist attack that left, you know, 1,700 people um, dead in similar circumstances. Yeah, we do know that uh, the health ministry in Palestine has reported that at least 50 of the hostages taken by Hamas have been killed due to the Israeli airstrikes. I'm really curious if you're the Israeli military and you have the backing of the U.S. government, why you're dropping 6,000 bombs and 4,000 tons of munition on residential neighborhoods in Gaza where you know many of the hostages are being held. I think a special forces mission to go where, seemingly, the Israeli government knows where the hostages are to go and rescue them. I'm just really concerned about the lack of concern for the hostages' lives. If you're bombing these neighborhoods, not allowing aid to enter into Gaza, imposing a blockade, uh, removing any access to electricity, Wi-Fi, and then bombing the area. That puts all of the hostages at risk. I just wonder if the Israeli government has made this calculation that they're no longer interested in saving these hostages' lives and why they've been such a focal point if that's the case. It's really you know, disheartening to see so many civilians killed uh, in a war that seems to be a war being fought by Benjamin Netanyahu against Hamas. I mean, 
the, the hostages' lives are at risk because they've been kidnapped by a terrorist group. I agree that the safe return of the hostages should be the main priority, a much greater priority. And um, I think there's—it's fine to scrutinize and question whether what Netanyahu's government is doing, the approach they've taken, is, is correct, is strategic. Uh, I'm worried that— um, you know, killing this many innocent civilians, aside from being an appalling uh, moral crime on its own, is just going to lead to a future generation of radical, you know, people who had their homes blown up, their their um, their loved ones killed in this strike. Are you know what? What? Where would that? Where will their sympathies lie a decade from now? Will they be you know even more supportive or inclined toward terrorist activity? This is this you know vicious cycle that has gone on for I mean frankly in this region for millennia. It, it's it feels impossible frankly to solve, which is why I advise U.S. policymakers to just stay out of it and turn inward and look at matters in our own country that maybe we could have some positive effect over rather than trying. Trying to solve a a political and ethnic and religious um, war that has that you know predates modern civilization. Um, but that said, it, I mean it's it's the, the the hostages would not be at risk if they'd not been abducted by a terrorist attack, and it's. Obvious to me. I mean, any state is going to respond to any government is going to respond to an attack on its citizens of this magnitude with with some kind of response. They were never no no functioning country on earth would just kind of like let that go. Um, but I, I think it's totally fair to criticize how Israel is handling it, and and more and even more so on the U.S. side, um, how we are just writing a check for it without any strings attached. Yeah, I think you're right to point out that there's a radicalizing effect on killing this many civilians. I think about, you know, a, a human being shouldn't be able to to take people hostage who are innocent and kill them and do terrible things to them or, or take them and uh, bring them into an area that's clearly a war zone where their lives are at risk. An 18-year-old soldier for Hamas, I mean, they don't have an official military. They're not allowed to because they're internationally deemed a terrorist organization. They don't have a formal government or state. But the Hamas fighters that have taken people hostage, I don't think that's a, a normal human being's behavior. Someone has to be made terribly sick or angry to do that. And I think about, you know, who's fighting for Hamas today? The median age in Gaza being 18 years old. These are really young kids. 31,000 Palestinians were killed by the Israeli army in a single year in 2018. A lot of the soldiers that are fighting today must have been about 13 years old. To see members of your family killed in the thousands for peacefully protesting the occupation in 2018, when you had the Israeli military beating and killing protesters and taking them hostage, I can imagine the kind of effect that would have on a 13-year-old, that they would probably grow up to really dislike at the very least, the Israeli military and the Israeli government. And so it seems to be a, a cycle that has already come full circle many times over for the Palestinians, this occupation having been in place for 75 years. And the U.S. government really seemingly is not in the side of peace if they're willing to keep funding the Israeli government who continues to do this. And more innocent people, I think, will continue to die unless the United States is the first one to step back. Well, right. But I think where that breaks down is, I mean, they didn't the terrorist attack was not narrowly 
respond. I mean, they didn't attack a Israeli military target, right? They kid they shot and kidnapped people from a music festival. They went to people's homes. They dragged old people from their homes. They killed people at bus stops. They killed they killed civilians. They killed noncombatants. And I know there's a certain strain of you know left wing endorsement and support for what Hamas does, saying this is. You know, legitimate because it's a military response to occupation. I think any response to the situation that involves the kidnapping and gunning down of noncombatants is totally illegitimate. I know some on the left don't share that view. I think the vast majority of people can obviously recognize that that is that's not a that's not a legitimate response to the situation the Palestinians are in, and and in and in the long term will not help alleviate the position they're in, and in fact has led to their. You know, them dying by the thousands. This is, I mean, this is Hamas's actions, which are just as harmful to to the innocent Palestinians in Gaza as as their actions were to the innocent Israelis they abducted and gunned down. Um, so it's a, it's a it's a it's definitely it's a horrible situation. It's a horrible crisis, and I I certainly want to push for. Peace in the region. I mean, I want to be a, a vocal supporter of peace in the region. I don't know that the U.S.'s job is to push for it by uh, by pushing either party with our with our money in the same way I you feel about the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Even though um, Russia is the aggressor there, is it is it you know worth um, draining us of our financial and military resources to prevent? Um, the you know easternmost part of that country becoming independent or part of Russia. I don't know that that's a legitimate national security goal. And at the end of the day, that's what our federal government should be concentrated on: our own security. And is our own security enhanced by a broader conflagration breaking out in the Middle East between Israel and Palestine? I think the answer is obviously no, and the American people know that it is no. I don't. Well, I I can sense a lot of support for Israel as the party that was attacked here. I don't think. This is a moment where the American people are clamoring for another war in the Middle East, particularly a ground war involving actual U.S. troops. I think that's something that is going to be pretty unanimously opposed by everyone in both the Democratic and Republican sides, because we we have seen what's gone wrong time and time again. Um, so it's a it's a. It is a, it's a difficult moment that I think calls for more reticence on our part, while still be, being very clear-eyed about. Um, what occurred, which was a terrorist attack, and terrorists are still holding people hostages. I think when many people were protesting in, in 2018 in Palestine, uh, there were citizens that were killed. There were civilians that were killed. 31,000 people were killed. Those were not official militant fighters against the Israeli government. These were everyday people peacefully protesting that they had been pushed out of their neighborhoods, their land has been taken, their grandparents were killed in 1948 in the Nakba when Israel military forces took up and killed and displaced many civilians so they could establish the state of Israel. So I think when we talk about the killing of civilians, we have to first talk about Israel as the aggressor and the young people that grew up with Israel, knowing very well that they were the ones who killed their relatives and their families. And I can't imagine what that does to a human being. Of course, that's going to radicalize many people who have lost everyone they know and love, have lost their home, have lost their neighborhood. And so I think without having a formal military, without having a formal state fighting against Israel, which is backed by the U.S. military, I think many people in Palestine fight back in any way they know they can. And an eye for an eye kind of cycle for these situations isn't possible when you have the Israeli military uh, being backed up by the United States, the amount of weapons and munition that they have. 
I mean, you have Palestinians throwing rocks at tanks for many, many years. They were able to kill 31,000 Palestinians in a year. All of those were not Hamas fighters. I think back to how the ANC, the African National Congress, fought for liberation from apartheid in South Africa. You didn't have Nelson Mandela peacefully protesting like the whitewashed history would like to have us believe. You didn't have Desmond Tutu just advocating for them to have peace talks. At first, you had very radical action from the people fighting against apartheid. They were bombing cars. They were bombing neighborhoods. They were labeled a terrorist organization by the United States. And the only reason they were able to achieve peace after the apartheid and occupation in South Africa was because they had liberation first. They had an agreement that these people would be able to go coexist peacefully, not be killed by their government if they were out of line, not be restricted to only live in certain neighborhoods and certain highways and be economically excluded from the society. And we need a similar, similar way forward for Israel. But I think the first step is to have the major global actor here, the United States, stop being on the wrong side of history the same way they did in South Africa. Yeah, I just, I don't think, I, I, I don't think the, in, again, the indiscriminate killing of civilians it helps that peace process take place whatsoever. And it seems like some on the left are, have this like fantasy that, that oh, it's legitimate. Well, let, let's set aside if it's legitimate or not. I obviously think it's not. This is what makes you a terrorist is when you target non-combatants. Um, but also, the, so it's the not going to. Why that measure would be a terrorist group. Oh, and I have endless criticism. To me, all all governments are organized monopolies of violence. All governments are outlaws, and I don't condone their actions whatsoever. And in fact, I oppose them. But you're not going to have this. Will not lead to greater liberation for the Palestinian people to to kidnap civilians at a music festival. It's obviously not. Look what it's led to. It's led to thousands and thousands and thousands of deaths. Those thousands of deaths are occurring as a result of the chain of actions that Hamas. Initiated a month ago. It's not going to lead to the Palestinians being better off. It's wrong. It's terrorism on its own, and it's ineffective as political change. We're seeing that it's ineffective. It's leading to thousands and thousands of deaths. I think it's so obvious that this was a bad thing that happened. Hamas shouldn't have done it. It will make it's making the it's gonna make the entire world a, a less safe place. And it's just it's so obvious to me that this was a this was a very bad thing to do. And 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 I vast majority of people agree, but but um, anyway, we gotta we gotta leave it there. Um, just wanted to add a production note. Um, it's the it's Hamas rather than the Palestinian Ministry of Health claiming that there were 50 hostages killed. So obviously we don't know for sure. Outside organizations have not confirmed that yet. The Biden administration said it does not have any way to verify. Again, a lot of these numbers are in flux still. Um, we'll try to verify when that is known, and we'll have more rising right after this. We have some updates for you on the 2024 presidential race. GOP candidate and former vice president Mike Pence has dropped out five months after launching his bid. He said during a speech at the Republican Jewish Coalition conference this weekend, it's become clear to me it's not my time. I've decided to suspend my campaign for president effective today. Elsewhere on the campaign trail, actress Cheryl Hines has slammed President Joe Biden for not providing 2024 presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy with a security detail after an intruder was arrested twice after trying to break into her home with RFK Jr. in Los Angeles. Hines told TMZ, quote, I respect President Biden and the administration, and at the same time, I feel like it's a political strategy. The latest fundraising and polling numbers suggest whether they like it or not, RFK Jr. is going to be a factor in the 2024 race. Check out this 
staggering fundraising haul from Kennedy, according to a Kennedy Super PAC. In just the first six hours after he launched his bid on October 9th, he raked in $11 million in six hours. Campaign coffers filling up fast. Poll numbers. PBS poll shows Kennedy drawing 16% of the vote in a hypothetical three-way race with Biden and Trump. In this one, Biden leading in that poll with 44% to Trump's 37. Yeah, so the real question now is whether RFK Jr.'s involvement in the general election, um, how that affects the race. And, you know, a lot of people on the right who were very who were thinking very favorable of RFK Jr. based on the things he was saying and that he was taking on Joe Biden and calling out, you know, Biden for, uh, for you know, being an insincere Democrat or for all the changes that have gone on in the Democratic Party on so many issues. Well, now he's a presence of the general election, and a lot of the appeal he had to independents and conservatives is still there, but could end up taking votes away from Donald Trump, which I have said numerous times I don't care about at all. I think people should vote for the candidate they want to vote for. No one is owed your vote. I'm generally supportive of third party and independent bids. They are able to capture votes because the major parties are overlooking issues that matter to the people. So so whoever, you know, ignores an RFK Jr. at at their peril and then suffers for it, sorry, that's democracy. Um, that's just the way it is. So I, it doesn't. I'm not, you know, decrying or bemoaning this could that this could negatively affect Trump or Biden, whatever is the case. But it seems like it's a reality now. We're looking at the polls that it could actually help Biden overcome Trump at the finish line. Yeah, I think it's ridiculous to assume that Biden is not giving security detail for political reasons. I think that there are a lot of people that are very high profile that are running for president right now that don't have security detail because of his family's history. He deserves security detail. I think it's a little ridiculous. There are a lot of people who have folks break into their homes because of their high profile status and don't get security detail from the United States president. I think that's a bit ridiculous. And I agree with you that it's also ridiculous that people saying he's some kind of spoiler candidate that he's going to take votes away from Joe Biden, then there's some kind of rivalry there. The polling has shown that a lot of his base leans more conservative. I think if you want to make the case that there's some votes to be grabbed by anyone, it's the 40% of Americans that don't show up and vote for federal elections. Let's try and get those people out to the polls. There's a totally gettable base of people that have not decided to vote simply because there hasn't been a candidate that they believe in. So give them something to believe in. That's your job as someone running for public office. This idea that RFK Jr. is pulling votes away from either major party is insane when we have 40% of the country not showing up to vote for a president at all. Those are people that either party and a third party candidate could easily get. So what do we have to say about Mike Pence? No longer in the race, um, was basically doomed the entire time, given the level of dislike there is for him in the Republican base. Um, he is perceived fairly or not fairly at all for having uh, betrayed Trump, be betrayed the MAGA core for not co-signing the, um, the efforts to have a different outcome in the election that went on. He's seen as a traitor for that reason, and so his you know, political future was pretty much written from that moment on. Oh, poor Mike Pence. He's not exciting, Robbie. I don't think he was going to get uh, very far in this race at all. And I don't think it has much to do even with Trump's base not liking him. Uh, I think it has everything to do with he's just not an exciting guy. He's not a man of the moment. There's a, a famous quote. I'm not sure who it's by. Uh, maybe it'll come to me. But it's that a leader 
defines the moment. It doesn't follow what a leader doesn't follow what the people want. Mike Pence is not someone who defines the moment uh, for the American people whatsoever. We need a candidate that's actually going to speak to the issues that matter for a lot of people. Mike Pence is another one of those candidates that has followed the book, essentially, for what a presidential candidate should talk like, sound like, what kinds of things they should say and what's off limits. And people are so sick of candidates like that. So I don't think he ever really had a shot. I think it's commendable he threw in the towel this early. Good for him. Yeah, you know, there's so many candidates running against Trump um, on the Republican side, very few of them catching fire in any meaningful way. Um, Ron DeSantis has some level of support, Vivek Ramaswamy has some level of support, and Nikki Haley has some level of support. And then also in the when they, you know, match these people up against Biden, um, Haley does pretty well. This is even though she has foreign policy views that I don't really agree with and don't represent my you know, contingent of the right uh, movement. Hers are very similar to uh, Chris Christie's and to, and to Mike Pence's, uh, but she's gotten a little bit more personality. I think it, it does come down to personality. It comes down to something because she upholds better in, in the general election. But those four at least have something to say for their candidacies at this point, even though obviously Donald Trump is running away with it, um, of course, is in such an interesting legal situation that maybe people are thinking, might as well see how this shakes out and just, just hang around. But um, the other candidates are not, you know, they're not catching right. Nobody's voted yet. So if you, you know, you want to stay in until we had a primary or two underway, I, I, that's perfectly legit legitimate. Everyone has the right to run for president if they want. But um, there's, there's no evidence whatsoever in my, my mind that conservative voters um, want to empower Mike Pence as the, as the candidate. Um, and, and you're right. It's not just it's not just the January sixth uh, stuff. It's it is personality and you know some some of his views. I, I don't know. He obviously he was vice president under Donald Trump, but um, his foreign policy views are again back in the more I think hawkish tradition that preceded Trump. I don't think Republicans want to go back to that. I mean, a substantial number of Republicans just just want Trump again. Um, they don't. I don't think they want a break. With, and then some Republicans maybe want to break with Trump's antics, with Trump's, you know, kind of self-sabotage in some of the perils he's gotten himself into. But I, I don't think they want to break with Trump's policies. There's a small number of Republicans. They occupy disproportionately prominent places in media on occasion who want to go back to an older version of the Republican Party. There's no evidence the voters want to do that. Yeah, there's a huge base of the Republican Party now. I mean, people who identify as conservatives who are extremely anti-interventionist. They don't want to see U.S. dollars going to foreign forever wars. And I think that's a good thing uh, that we have folks on both sides pressuring the mainstream party to uplift candidates that are not going to support more of the same American foreign policy. I think uh, it's, it's unfortunate that now Dean Phillips entering the race is also more of the same on the Democratic side. He has very establishment candidate views when it comes to foreign policy. I don't really see anyone shaking things up right now from this being a Trump-Biden-Kennedy general election. Hmm. He is, however, not an 80-year-old man. There is always that. Mm -hmm. And in other 2024 news, comedian and commentator Bill Maher received some pushback when he expressed support for President Joe Biden's Democratic challenger from Minnesota, Dean Phillips. Dean Phillips. He's from Minnesota. He's Jewish. He's 54. Did I mention he's 54? <laughs> and... He, he loves Biden. He says exactly what I say. Did a great job, but don't do it again. 
right. Uh, family, uh, self-made millionaire from the uh, families in the organic vodka business. <laughs> Dean Phillips, I'm getting behind him for president of the United States. How about you? <laughs> you know anything about him? Um, yeah, more than I know about Mike Johnson two days ago. Um, Should we welcome <laughs> this? Is this good? Um, I guess, and I was listening to your interview with Governor Cuomo, who was saying that we need a lively primary, and that doesn't take away from anything that Biden has accomplished, which I think we all agree right. is a tremendous amount. The issue with what Dean Phillips is doing is, um, A, there are a lot of kind of, like Steve Schmidt is a senior advisor to him. I got an email today from Andrew Yang, who has not revealed himself, I think, to have the best interests of the Democratic Party winning elections at heart. In 2019, he was maxed out donation from Harlan Crow, who bankrolls Clarence Thomas. Um, you know, there are things about him that I don't like. I, I appreciate the enthusiasm, and these are issues we should be talking about, but every vote in 2024 is going to count. Hmm. What did you make of that, Jessica? That's from Jessica that Tarlov, a, uh, another uh, another TV Jessica, who I've been on with Fox. Uh, and I, she's like the liberal voice on, on Fox. Very lovely person. But what did you make of what she said there? Wasn't a convincing argument either way. I don't know if she likes Dean Phillips or not. I don't even think she said anything about Dean Phillips other than she knows a little bit more about him than Mike Johnson. Does that qualify him for the highest office in the United States government? Stay tuned. Maybe. Yeah. It just might. Because he's 54. I think you're going to need to be a little bit more than younger than Joe Biden to be the candidate that we pick. I mean, they didn't even make the case for why his policies didn't even mention what they are, but why they would make him a good candidate. If they think Joe Biden did a good job, how would Dean Phillips continue in doing a good job if he takes over at the midterm? I mean, there's really nothing there of substance. Hmm. All right. We'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. Safer in Saudi Arabia? That's what son-in-law and former advisor to ex-president Donald Trump, Jared Kushner, said about the state of the Jewish community in America, particularly on college campuses. Here's how he put it on Fox News. Let's watch. Yeah, so it was a very interesting time to be over there, and I've been there many times before. Uh, one of the ironies is that uh, as an American Jew, you're safer in Saudi Arabia right now than you are on a college campus like Columbia University. Um, I spoke at the conference. They allowed me to speak freely. Kushner was there on business and per reporting in The Hill, sensed Saudi officials felt, quote, big disgust by the Hamas attacks. Now, his comments come as a flurry of pro-Palestinian sentiment and an escalation of aggression against Jewish students sweeping college campuses here in the United States. This weekend, law enforcement's presence increased at Cornell University's campus after an anti-Jewish post was made on a student forum reading, quote, Allahu Akbar, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, glory to Hamas, liberation by any means necessary, unquote. The poster signed, kill Jews. Students at Cornell were also issued a stark warning to avoid the kosher hall. The message sent by Cornell Hillel notified students, staff, and faculty that it is aware of the threats being made against the building 104 West, where the dining hall is located. And it advised people to avoid using it out of, quote, an abundance of caution. Another Cornell alum posted several screenshots of disturbing messages directed at the Jewish community, urging the slitting of Jewish people's throats, the killing of Jewish women, among other violent messages. So there are a lot of messages being posted here. I'm curious as to what they mean by an abundance of caution. What did those threats look like? 
Uh, I, I'm curious why Jared Kushner said that. We haven't had anyone who is Jewish in the United States killed as a result of the escalation of the conflict. A six-year-old Muslim boy, however, was killed in Chicago. I think, you know, tensions are really high, and I don't want to over-highlight, uh, you know, the threats to the Jewish community without highlighting also the threats to the Muslim community. I just don't think it's the time or place for, for everyday American citizens to be hashing this issue out amongst themselves. I don't think it's the place of Ron DeSantis to saying that, you know, college students who support the Palestinians uh, are not allowed to meet in groups and, and talk. You can't have a, a group on a college campus. This is directly a, a free speech violation. I'm not surprised it's coming from DeSantis because I think we knew his support of free speech was a, a, a hypocrisy. Uh, hypocritic uh, at best. And so the way that he's shutting down these groups does not surprise me, but it's really unfortunate uh, what's happening at college campuses, how it's become so central uh, in mainstream press. These are young kids figuring out the world. Perhaps we should stick to talking about the adults and focus our concerns there. Look, I, uh, also, I wrote an article for Reason about how Ron DeSantis' order with respect to the um, Palestinian student groups and how I, I agree with you that I think that violates the First Amendment. They have every right to hold odious views and to be active on them. Um, but you certainly don't have a right, whoever's doing it, to threaten Jewish students and Jewish institutions. And look, I find it a bit rich because four years um, left-wing groups, including the Anti-Defamation League, have claimed that there's escalating hateful rhetoric and hate crimes and hate speech against um, uh, Jewish people and other groups, uh, directly attributing it, these left-wing groups did, to Donald Trump and his rhetoric, saying that the, the state of, of fear for Jewish people because of the right is, you know, is off the charts and has increased dramatically. And I've I've had to confront those claims. People on the right have had to confront those claims for years. Now we have a situation where left-wing Palestinian activists or Islamic activists on college campuses are, are threatening um, J Jewish students, calling Jewish people rats, calling for violence against them, um, projecting um, hateful uh, rhetoric on their buildings. Um, they have to close. I mean, there, there's, like, off the ch in this moment, there is off the charts um, there is an increase, I think, certainly, of this kind of unacceptable rhetoric, and it's it's coming from it's coming from Palestinian sympathetic people. It's coming from the left, and now we're supposed to say, actually, just discount it. We, it should just be discounted. That doesn't seem fair at all to me, to the people who've been smeared as as anti-Semitic for just supporting Donald Trump. I don't think it should be discounted. I definitely don't think Ron DeSantis should be shutting down groups that are expressing their political opinion on college campuses. But I think in this case, in the case of the, the threats to the dining hall, it would make sense to me for Cornell to increase the security there to you know, ensure the students that this is not a war that will be fought on Cornell campus and that they're safe. They're much safer in Cornell than they absolutely would be in the Gaza Strip. Uh, that, you know, the threats that have been made against them being compared to the Nazi sentiments within Donald Trump's party, you know, definitely not the same thing. But you do have people flying Make America Great Again flags in the same rallies. They're flying, you know, the Nazi swastika flag. So I, I don't think it's fair to say that, you know, these are the same things. There is definitely anti-Semitism on the left. There's anti-Semitism on the right. It is a problem. 
but I think it's up to the university to make people feel safe and, and to focus a lot of their, their statements on the anti-Semitism. I would wonder if there's a lot Islamophobia on the campus of Cornell as well. What are they doing about that? Universities need a plan so that students can peacefully express their political opinions uh, without creating grounds for Islamophobia and anti-Semitism to grow. And that's a challenge that universities now have had to face for quite some time. And so it's really up to Cornell to decide what to do next. I, I really hope that the government doesn't see fit that they need to litigate the situations on these college campuses in the way that Ron DeSantis has. I saw uh, Senator Bernie Sanders uh, post on Twitter, on X, a perfectly, to my mind, benign statement. Um, I'll read it to you today. We remember and mourn for the victims lost five years ago in the devastating massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue. We must remain committed to fighting all forms of bigotry, anti-Semitism, intolerance, racism, and xenophobia. That of, who, could, who could disagree with that statement, right? Well, it looks like, to me, a lot of people on the left disagree with it because the comments is just for people who describe themselves as former supporters of Bernie Sanders who are so incensed by the comment coming at this time. Uh, how is that not, it, what you're saying, it's, it's wrong to recognize that five years ago there were victims of, of anti-Semitism in that attack? I, I don't even get what's being said, but it looks to me like people on the left who used to be Sanders supporters um, endorsing, I guess, like the collective guilt of the Jewish people for their, because of uh, their frustration with what Israel is doing. Um, it's just, it's just gross to me. I, I, I think, I think you're right that there is certainly undeniably anti-Semitism on the left and on the right. And uh, the mainstream media has treated this in a very one-sided direction for a long time, uh, by only, by only treating it as if it's a serious issue on the right. Yeah, I think a lot of the former Sanders supporters, you know, it, it can be a yes and situation. It can be yes. You know, the killing at the synagogue, synagogue was disgusting and we remember the, uh, the tragedy. But let's also remember that Senator Sanders, there's also a, a huge carpet bombing campaign going on in Gaza today. And you have not called for a ceasefire. You have not called the ending of the expansion of the occupation by Israel. I think uh, a lot of people feel a sense of urgency of the violence that's happening today, of the violence that happened over the weekend, of the many Palestinians that were civilians that were killed by the bombs that were dropped on them when they had no internet to call to the world and tell the world what was going on. They were left in complete blackout. And Israel is who controls their electricity. It's who controls their water in Northern Gaza. They have put a blockade on them, but they have also controlled their air and their land exit or their water exits, the borders, aside from one border, which is controlled by is uh, by Egypt. Israel controls three out of the four borders. It's been quite some time that they've controlled what happens within Gaza. And that's allowed them today to commit atrocities that they don't have to be held accountable for because people don't have access to electricity uh, and Wi-Fi and cellular service to document them. So I think I understand the feeling of a sense of urgency of, of Senator Sanders. Why are you not calling for peace for the violence that's happening today? and remembering the violence that happened yesterday. I think he can do both. And I think they're upset that he didn't do both and chose to do one but not the other. Yeah, I think making Jewish students feel unsafe because you disagree with the policies of the Israeli government is evil, just as making random Muslim people feel unsafe because of the actions of the terror, terrorist group Hamas, um, that bad Violent, violent organizations and governments too that do all sorts of bad things want to want to do collective punishment, want to treat all people as members of some group and everyone responsible for every bad thing the group does, and um, it's on everyone to look be be 
look beyond that very narrow and limited and illiberal way of thinking. And there's uh, there's an activist contingent that is just, I think, unwilling to do that in this moment. Yeah, I think that's true, that there are a lot of people that are blinded, you know, by the violence, by rage, by, you know, being upset that their family is being killed. I think human beings don't think clearly when they're in that state of mind, if they have family members in Gaza. And so I think the, the proper way forward here uh, is that we approach sort of what the ANC in, in South Africa and Desmond Tutu, along with Nelson Mandela and their group that were fighting for freedom for so long, once they reach the point where they gain the support of the international community, once many people were paying attention to the atrocities that were being committed in apartheid South Africa, then they said, OK, we need to find a way to, to coexist. And I think a lot of people are not hopeful based on all of Netanyahu's sentiments and actions that he will ever agree to that. We had Jimmy Carter in 2013 say that Hamas is in a place where they would like peace, where they would both like to live in their in their homeland, where a lot of Palestinian people were pushed out of in 1948 in the Nakba, that they would like to return and coexist with Israelis. And Jimmy Carter said that in his negotiations, Netanyahu was not supportive of that. So we've known this for a decade. So I think a lot of people would like to have a path forward for peace. And I think a lot of people are blinded by the violence right now. And a lot of people are angry and, and many people are rightfully angry because of the violence that's happened to their families and their communities. But I do think that the way forward is liberation and then peace. But there needs to be a regime in Israel and the U.S. can influence this that also supports peace I mean, and liberation. But there forward. needs to be a regime in Gaza as well, right? I mean, that's, Hamas doesn't want peace with Israel. They just they just attacked and abducted a number of Israelis, right? They just kicked off a new front in the in the in the conflict. So I, I mean, I wish Israel had been. I, we've criticized Israel's policies on the show a number of times. There's been credible uh, credible evidence for the mistakes Netanyahu specifically has made that have actually emboldened Hamas. But um, but I mean, it's it's clear what Hamas's goals, right? It's not peaceful coexistence with with Israel. There's no evidence of that. Well. Israel's made it impossible for Gaza to establish a government, for the West Bank to have a functioning government. When you have the occupation and the control uh, of your borders by another country, you're not allowed to be a sovereign nation. The Palestinians don't have a country. They can't have a government. They're not even allowed to have a military. So I think it's it's kind of absurd to to assume that it's it's the Gazans' fault, it's the Palestinians' fault, it's the people living in the West Bank's fault that they don't have a government to negotiate for peace. That right has been denied to them by Israel. They're not Honestly, allowed to. I did not something. say it was their fault. I'm not blaming them. They're victims just as much of this. But the, the group that's active, the government they have, it's not, a, it's not a legitimate government. It's not the it's one they selected before most of the people there were even born. Um, but I'm just saying that group does not want to live in peace. And that makes this process very difficult. It sounds like Jimmy Carter believed Hamas wanted to live in peace. If you have someone who is the president of the United States saying that, he met and spoke with Hamas back in 2013, just five years or so after they were elected, six years after they were elected, uh, that they wanted peace, that they were ready to negotiate with Israel. And Jimmy Carter said, well, it sounds like Netanyahu wants a one-state solution. He wants to absolve Palestine. This is not coming from a radical uh, living outside of Israel, living in Gaza. This is not coming from Hamas. This is coming from Jimmy Carter. And so I really do believe that Netanyahu is the aggressor in this situation. They continue to take land and occupy Palestine. 
And their aggression is why there's not peace in the region. And I think maybe Netanyahu doesn't need the support of the United States if we're going to have a peaceful way forward. And the United States really needs to think critically of their role in this because they're putting all of us in jeopardy by supporting a regime that by 800 scholars of international law has defined as committing a genocide right now. The United States being supportive and complicit in this is a security risk, I think, for everyone at home if they decide to retaliate. Well, that part I agree with. Uh, the rest I disagree, but we that's why we have a little debate show here. Uh, more rising right after this. Journalistic failure? Well, after an explosion at the Al-Ali Baptist Hospital in Gaza on October 17th, headlines around the world and across the country declared that the Gaza Health Ministry said the blast had killed at least 500 people. But according to journalist David Zweig, after extensive investigation, he's found zero evidence that the Health Ministry spokesperson actually ever said that more than 500 people died, even though that figure was reported over and over and over again in mainstream media. Writer of the Silent Lunch newsletter on Substack, David Zweig, joins us now to discuss. Thank you for being back with us, David. Thanks for having me. So you did something pretty remarkable and also totally basic that far too few reporters ever do. You took note that this was said over and over again in, in mainstream reporting, in a, a bunch of publications, the New York Times, I believe Washington Post, and on and on, that 500, at least 500 killed in the hospital blast, according to uh, uh, the, the Palestinian Health Authority. And you asked those, those reporters at those publications, where is the statement where they said that? Or where, you know, who did you talk to in the Palestinian Health Authority that said that? Get, tell us what they told you. Well, they told me nothing. Um, th this whole thing began because this was sort of a remarkable statement that within, you know, a very short amount of time after um, an explosion at this hospital, we're talking about this is, you know, in the midst of a chaotic war zone. It's at night. An explosion happens. It seemed odd to me that they were able to um, tally the number of dead um, with such precision so quickly. Um, so something seemed a little off to me. And um, so, as I often do, I wanted to find the actual source. I wanted to see not news outlets secondhand saying that the ministry said this, but where is the evidence that the health ministry uh, spokesperson actually said these words? And no one linked to it. No one. So I started reaching out. I contacted two different journalists at the New York Times. I reached out to multiple people at the Associated Press and on down the line, and none of them provided evidence to me. And only the New York Times actually even responded. Um, and that was from, a, you know, basically like a PR person there saying, uh, you know, go away, <laughs> essentially. So I'm curious, yeah. it, it sounds like you looked for quite some time for evidence that the spokesperson for the Ministry of Health ever said this. It took me about about five minutes of Googling to find the primary source. It was reported directly by Anandalu Agency, which is a, a pretty big substantive news agency out of Turkey. They got the quote directly from the spokesperson, Ashraf El-Kudra, the same spokesperson that's been doing a lot of reporting on the fighting in Gaza, they said more than 500 people were killed in an Israeli airstrike on the Al-Ahi Baptist Hospital in Gaza on Tuesday. Health Ministry spokesman Ashraf El-Kudra told Anandolu directly. So it sounds like they got the primary quote uh, directly from the source. I'm curious, uh, did you not find this 
because you weren't looking on other news sources beyond mainstream media? Uh, did you find this and, and deem it irreparable? What is the reason that you didn't uh, quote this source in your paper or believe that, you know, this didn't exist somewhere? I mean, it really didn't take me long to find this. I'm just curious what your process was. Sure. Yeah. Um, I initially was looking at all the sort of major legacy media outlets in America and a few abroad. Um, I don't typically look at Turkish media. However, the Turkish um, article you're referring to they say that, but again, there's no evidence of this actual statement. That's so, are you suggesting that the entire media establishment in America, New York Times, ABC, NBC, CBS, NPR, PBS, on downline, all of them did their reporting based on this Turkish media outlet report? Because the interesting thing is, the one actual public statement where citizens, regular people themselves, can hear the words from the spokesperson was on Al Jazeera. And what he said publicly, not secondhand from a reporter at a Turkish news agency, but what he said publicly directly contradicts that statement. Well, and, and what and you're what saying is, aren't you saying that, that, go, go ahead, Jessica. What was that public statement? I'm sorry, that contradicts this statement. Right, so the, um, the only evidence that regular people actually have the only public statement that people have access to where it's not journalists reporting it secondhand, but an interview um, on Al Jazeera, it's in Arabic, um, where I had I hired two different Arabic translators to listen to the interview and then transcribe it into English. And in, in, in addition to um, Google Translate machine learning. So I had two humans and sort of uh, you know, uh, Google working on this. And it's very, very clear that he said the word victims, um, which is in Arabic, victims or casualties, which does not mean dead. And in fact, when you look at the, when you listen to it or look at a transcript in the sentence prior to the one in question, he differentiates between dead bodies and people who are um, victims or casualties who are injured. The word in Arabic that he was using for victims um, in the prior sentence, he then uses again. So it was unambiguous that he never in, the, in that interview suggested that there were at least 500 killed. Well, and also, aren't you really saying that you know, if, if it's a Turkish source, if it's Al Jazeera, it, it doesn't matter as long as like the New York Times and whoever's reporting should say, if, if this were the case, you know, f uh, 500 uh, dead, um, the Palestinian health authorities say according to Al Jazeera or according to a Turkish media source. Like if that was their their source for it, that should have been included in the reporting anyway. And the fact that they didn't they didn't further identify those is actually a problem I've noticed with the Times in particular. Unlike every subject, they'll just attribute things even if those things are first reported to other media outlets. They won't tell you what media outlet or who they won't. They certainly won't link to it. Um, that's something that I'm sure that's happened to us at the Hill before. This definitely happened to me in my um, capacity as a writer for Reason Magazine, where they just, they just don't acknowledge the reporting that other outlets do. So in some sense, it's not, to me, the issue here is almost not you know, what the literal, if, 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 if that figure is right or not, or you know, who, I mean, who really knows yet, right? But it's, the, New York, the, the mainstream media was asserting it and then not giving you the information for why they were saying that, who had said that first to who. It could have been Al Jazeera, it could have been the Turkish media outlet, frankly. They're just, they should have just said that, so you would know. 
That, that's right. There, to, in my view, there are a number of things that this is really a fascinating case study about really failures in a number, on a number of levels with how the sort of legacy media operates. And one of them, as you said, is where, where is the attribution? If they got it from Al Jazeera, say this is from an interview with Al Jazeera and, and put in a link to it. If they got it from the Turkish agency, then put that in. Instead, everything is written in this sort of, you know, passive voice or this abstract from the, Turk, from the uh, you know, health ministry per spokesperson. But no one has any clue. And not only, look, the journalists do not owe me personally a response. Um, however, I think if you're writing an article and you include specific claims in your article, whether it's you know claims about statistics or statements that are attributed to someone, you damn well better include a link to that. Or if you're not, then you are obligated to respond to whether it's another journalist like myself or regular citizens who are saying, hey, I want to see the original source. You've got to do it one way or the other. If you're not going to put it in your article, then you need to at least acknowledge people when they're asking for it. That's a reasonable expectation. We can't, it can't just be trust me, bro. And I'll tell you what's even worse is I reached out to two different media people at the Associated Press, and this is literally their job is to communicate with the media. And neither of them responded to multiple queries from me as well, where I said, look, is it the Associated Press's position that you publish claims, you don't give um, the original source and you refuse to provide it when asked? And clearly the silence that I was met with, the answer is yes, that is the official position of the Associated Press. Yeah, I, so I think, out, go ahead, sorry, Jessica. It turns out that 471 Palestinians have confirmed to have been killed by the airstrike on the hospital. It's still up for grabs as to where the airstrike came from. But 471 is, is 29 off from 500 at a time of war when hundreds are being killed. I mean, it also sounds like the number could be well above 500, given that the number of casualties typically exceeds those killed. And we have six hospitals shut down in Gaza. They have limited supplies and ability to treat casualties. So it sounds like the death toll after a week or so could end up actually being over 500, but only 29 off from 500. It seems pretty close to accurate. I'm curious, have you found any reporting that has been very far off from the ultimate death toll from the initial estimation and reporting? Yeah, well, I mean, this is sort of a side issue from what the thrust of my reporting was about. Um, I think these numbers are highly um, unstable and there's going to be a lot of disagreement. There is a lot of disagreement about how um, how reliable these numbers are. So whether it ultimately, you know, the, the numbers were revised repeatedly from different um, officials, and then also, you know, there were estimates made by, you know, people outside of, of Gaza and outside of Hamas by other countries. So that's going to be a contentious point, what, what the number you're, you know, they're saying it's 479. That may or may not be true, I don't know. But that's an entirely separate issue from immediately after an explosion outside of a hospital in a war zone at night that the press ran with the story, at least 500 were killed. When the, the likelihood of that type of tally being made with such precision immediately after was extremely unlikely. And number two, none of them have provided evidence of that. And the only evidence we have that's public is something that where the health spokesperson says something different, where he did not say at least 500 were killed. So the point here is not about, uh, my reporting is not about the origin of the explosion. It's not about what the ultimate death toll is. Either way, this is a horrible tragedy, make no mistake. To me, what's interesting and really important is 
sort of how the sausage is made and for people to understand when you're seeing headlines across every single media outlet that exists basically in America and they're all saying the same thing and none of them provided the original source and the only public version of this that we have conflicts with the reporting they all have, that's a problem. Right, when it's not linked or sourced, I think the reader's assumption is that that reporter talk to that representative, that spokesperson, that official. I mean, if I had an article where I, I give some figure and I say, according to David Zweig, or David Zweig says, you'd probably think, and then unless I was linking to something you've written or an appearance you've made, you'd probably think you told it to me. And like, that's the, that's the kind of report, like in, in the days where um, journalists actually had to track down every fact they were supplying, it was, you know, the, the, even before the internet, right? It was actually sourced to conversations they were, they were literally having every time. Now we have people can make statements, uh, easier to release statements to the press or just to the general public on social media or whatever else. You can very easily include a link and show, here's what I'm referring to. If you just say, it's according to this official, or this official says, well, you assume that the reporter actually talked to the official, which was not the case for any of these outlets um, involved in this story. Or, or maybe it's the case, but none of them are telling. Um, right. And that's quite strange. And I took this up several levels at the New York Times to a standards editor there. Um, I mean, if they had interviewed this guy, um, why would you possibly not reveal that once you're being you know, questioned about it? Hey, what, yeah. what's the source? Um, it's possible that a report was sent out via telegram or that there's been, you know, in my um, various sources who I'm working with and other people, some people are saying that messages were sent out via other channels. But if that's the case, why not just say so? And again, that direct, then that means you have this health minister who's directly contradicting himself, sending out something on, you know, in a private telegram account or whatever to certain journalists and then saying something publicly that's completely different um, to Al Jazeera. I think, to me, to my mind, the most likely explanation here is that most of these journalistic outlets, they follow Al Jazeera and a handful of other accounts. They saw it printed this way, even though it was incorrect, and then they just ran with it. Mm. Um, Al Jazeera Arabic said one thing, and Al Jazeera English said something else. Now, which one are we going to believe? The one that's the actual source, where you can translate it from Arabic, or someone in Al Jazeera English wrote something different? So this whole thing is just a complete mess, in my mm. view. And um, the issue is not about what the final number is. The issue is not about the, you know, the bomb explosion, at least the one that, that I'm talking about. What's interesting to me is what is the process that occurs when all of these outlets start reporting um, a story? And what are the consequences of when they all report something and then they refuse to reveal the source of that claim? Mm. David, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Documents obtained by the government watchdog group White Coat Waste Project shows that President Biden's nominee to be new director of the NIH told Senator Rand Paul she supports gain-of-function research and funding animal labs in China. She also refused to commit to improving oversight of foreign animal labs. Dr. Monica Bertignoli's admission came during a hearing held on Capitol Hill in recent weeks where senators grilled her on her record and on her views. Now, she's expected to receive a Senate vote on her nomination to lead the National Institutes of Health this week. Joining us now to weigh in is White Coat Waste Project Senior Vice President Justin Goodman. Welcome, Justin. Thanks for having me, Robbie. So this issue of 
of uh, gain-of-function research funding and lab safety is at the center of the COVID-19 uh, origins debate and even what should we should do moving forward. Um, this is the figure who, who you know, will, will be in the position to guide the, what the policies are, what the funding is. How concerned should we be that she does not take this fear the American people have, have about this research seriously? Well, I think Bertignoli's responses to Rand Paul's question should raise a red flag for anyone, whether they're concerned with national security, wasteful spending, preventing another pandemic, or frankly, NIH's abuse of dogs and experiments in the United States and abroad. You know, after the NIH nightmare that we've experienced over the past few years, any NIH director should certainly not tolerate funding dangerous, unaccountable animal labs run by our foreign enemies that are doing experiments that place public health in peril. Yet her responses to Rand and Paul indicate, indicate she is fully in line with the NIH status quo and totally out of step, not only with science, but what the American people want. Do you think that there's a, a world where there is funding that goes towards gain-of-function research? It's definitely not a new problem. I mean, there have been bans on gain-of-function research before by NIH as to whether or not they're going to provide funding. Dating back to 2011, the H5N1 virus uh, around bird flu, there have been all kinds of controversies and a lot of back and forth and lack of consensus within the research community as to whether or not the benefits of this research outweighs, uh, you know, potential problems caused and potential outbreaks of, of new viruses, not just the ones we're trying to develop vaccines for. Is there a world where there's funding given with additional restrictions that you think would be satisfactory? Or do you think we should most likely end all gain-of-function research due to the negative consequences outweighing the potential benefits? That's a great question. I mean, my position, our position is that the costs definitely outweigh the benefits. You know, Monica Bertignoli in her comments to Rand Paul said that there's potential great benefit of manipulating potential pandemic pathogens and laboratory pathogens and laboratories, there's literally no evidence of that. Uh, that's just a talking point from the virology community. There has been no situation in which a pandemic has been prevented or uh, stemmed due to dangerous gain-of-function experiments with pandemic uh, pathogens. We only know of one situation, the one we're now still living through, where a pandemic was actually caused by one. Um, so I think what the Biden-Obama uh, administration did back in 2014 to defund these programs was wise. I think there's no reason why we shouldn't do it again. And I think the COVID pandemic is a perfect example of that. At the very least, there needs to be more transparency and the bar needs to be very, very high. The only people advocating for more gain-of-function research are the ones lying in their pockets doing it. And talk to us about increased lab safety. I know this is something your group has uh, worked on in, in other contexts, including the experiments on, on animals under horrific um, conditions. You know, the, it seems like the scientific establishment, the government funding establishment, just, just um, rejects out of hand any idea that there would be more oversight and accountability for these kinds of experiments. Um, is that, and that's even the case now with, with, with uh, a manipulation of viruses in foreign labs. She won't commit to, uh, to, to greater um, standards for the places these things are done? Uh, shocking, but true. Yeah, last year we exposed an illegal NIH loophole. Basically, the federal law since 1985 says that any animal lab getting money from the NIH, whether in the U.S. or abroad, needs to have certain oversight in place. 
the NIH wrote an illegal loophole for all foreign labs, a blanket loophole, saying that none of them have to abide by any of the animal welfare, biosafety, or oversight standards of U.S. laboratories, including even having inspections. Um, the NIH is fighting us in court right now, saying that they can do what they want, and this isn't illegal, but it clearly is. Rand Paul asked Bertignoli about this in his questions for the record during the nomination process, and she said she she supports the current rules that are in place to oversee foreign laboratories. So what we have now, just to make it abundantly clear, is the U.S. government has shipped billions of dollars to animal labs in China, Russia, and other foreign countries, uh, so adversarial nations as well as others over the last few years. And there is literally no oversight uh, into what is happening in those laboratories to animals, how our money is being spent, if it's being used by uh, you know, evil forces in these laboratories for other purposes, we have no idea. It's a complete black box. And apparently the NIH nominee is not worried about that. Hmm. So it sounds like a lot of the scientists that have been pursuing gain-of-function research see that it's going to be necessary in the future to develop vaccines, more advanced vaccines to address new viruses that come about. Is there a, a concern that if the NIH pulls funding, federal funding, government funding from supporting gain of function research, that then these labs will seek funding from other sources, potentially pharmaceutical companies that might enforce less restrictions than the NIH could if they had funding and had some pull over how these research uh, labs conduct themselves and how the research goes? Well, you know, there was an oversight hearing either last week or the week before uh, in the House Select Committee on the co coronavirus pandemic, bipartisan hearing, commentary from both Democrats and Republicans in Congress. And they had um, testifying Gerald Parker, who's the head of basically the biosecurity committee that oversees gain of function policy. And his comments to the committee were that we do, do not need gain of function research with potential pandemic pathogens to develop vaccines and your research. So he is the person who oversees gain of function policy, and he is of the belief that we, not, we do not need to be doing this type of gain of function research to get safe and effective vaccines and cures to people. Uh, and that he's not in a minority. A lot of people believe that. And they believe that if that is going to happen, it really needs strict oversight. Um, what happened in Wuhan? You know, basically, we had a situation where we outsourced dangerous research that wouldn't have been allowed here. It potentially caused a pandemic and no one's been held accountable. Uh, that has to change. Hmm. Justin Goodman, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Disney is pushing back the release of its Snow White live-action movie until 2025, a move that conservatives attribute to the movie's giant attempts to be woke. Conservative critics pointed out Disney's rendition initially cast diverse men and women instead of dwarves to play the entourage of Snow White, but since scrapped that idea in favor of CGI dwarves. Now, the studio says Disney Snow White has been delayed a whole year because of the sag after strike, which forced studios to reshuffle their release schedules. Meanwhile, a clip of side-by-side -side actresses Rachel Ziegler, who was cast to play the princess in Disney's remake, and Brett Cooper, who will play the same role in the Daily Wires version, has gone viral. Take a look. First, here's Ziegler. You said you were bringing a modern edge to it on stage. What do you mean by that? I just mean that it's no longer 1937, and we absolutely wrote a Snow White that she's is... not going to be yeah. saved by the prince. She's not going to be saved by the prince, and she's not going to be dreaming about true love. She's dreaming about becoming the leader she knows she can be. 
So then we have uh, Brett Cooper of The Daily Wire. By 2030, it's predicted that 45% of women will be unmarried and childless. And why do you think that is? Well, it's because we've been told that, you know, men are trash and that our career is the only thing that matters and that marriage and children will inhibit that, which is unnatural. That is biologically unnatural for women. Uh, you get your choice. You get your choice, that. Jessica. There's left-wing Snow White and right-wing Snow White. So, you know, isn't choice a beautiful thing? Yes, so beautiful. The two Snow Whites. I think it's funny that this is all about whether or not Snow White is woke. And isn't it the whole premise of the story that she's in an eternal sleep unless she's kissed by the prince? I think Brett Cooper's point is not well taken because it was illegal for women to get a credit card unless they were married until 1974. I would suggest that maybe it's not that people are saying men are trash and that's why women aren't getting married. I think maybe marriage rates were a little bit higher before that law was passed, among other laws, uh, laws that made it legal for men to hit their wives, that after these laws were passed, women were less likely to have children and get married simply because they had free agency in our society. Maybe they just wanted a credit card, not a husband. Mm. I don't think it's because there's negative sentiments towards men and that's why women aren't getting married. I think women have freedom of choice now in a way that they didn't before. Mm. Women with credit cards, what's next, Jessica? Is there, there no end to this feminazi agenda? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> Kidding, of course, for anyone unclear about that. Um, the, uh, yeah, I, I, without co-signing what, uh, what, uh, Brett said there, um, but you, but the point is that, yes, the story is a traditional story because it was made at a different time, and if you don't like that, you can just make your own story. You can just make a different story. I mean, you can do whatever you want, but it's, I, I think what irritates, um, audiences is the idea that, you know, some, some tale that has slightly different values or norms when it was created must, it, we must keep that tale because we're going to cynically use it to make money, but we have to, we have to change every aspect of it, but like the character's name in order to fit modern progressive sensibilities. Just do a, just make a, just make a different, just create your own story. Like it doesn't, it, it can, you can leave intact. Um, a, an older story that has older values and, and make that. You don't even have to remake it. Just make, just make a new one. It feels like there's a lack of imagination with some of these things, but um, on the part of creating something new, but then, but then they must include all the modern values or it's like offensive for some reason. Yeah, I, I think that we have the original stories for a lot of these fairy tales that turn out to be much different from Disney's first interpretation in the cartoon version of the movie. Snow White's cartoon version is still there that Disney first produced. You can also go and read the original Snow White fairy tales. But I think it's it's absurd that viewers think they have any uh, responsibility to dictate what they would like to see on screen, that they have any sway over the Disney executives. Disney's going to make what Disney's going to make because Disney has the rights to make movies about Snow White and they can do whatever they want. If they want to do a woke version of Snow White, go ahead. And if you don't like it and you don't want to watch it, don't watch it. I just don't think it's as big of no. a deal as people make it. But I think well, I mean, it's anybody, anybody can make a Snow White movie because they don't know they don't have the rights. The rights have expired. They used to have them. They've expired because now it's that's why uh -huh. the Daily Wire is able is able to do this. But you're right to point uh -huh. out that the Disney versions are different than the original fairy tales. For instance, um, in the original Snow White tale, they capture the the evil queen and they force her to wear um, like like they put shoes under red hot 
pokers, and they, they make her wear these red hot shoes to torture her. And um, woke Disney didn't include this in their telling. So I, I wonder if the conservative version will bring back this uh, resolution to the plot. Yes, teach the children about the curses that can be broken with true love's kiss and about torture in retaliation for crimes committed against beloved human beings. Yes, and of course, the, the changing of the, dwar the dwarfs has been a huge controversy as well. And now no one knows what the movie is going to be like when Disney comes out with it because Rachel Ziegler has done all of this press and now people are saying Gal Gadot should take over, that Disney's delayed production because there's rumors that they're firing Ziegler. There's all of this press about the movie, which leads me to believe, are there marketing geniuses at Disney that have created this controversy on purpose so that more people will watch the film? When we all like the original, we don't need a live action version because sometimes they're creepy. Especially when they try and make, like, human versions of all of the creatures that end up helping out Snow White. And you have all of these humans doing the green screen stuff with people that aren't really there. It just comes out weird. It's a little off-putting. It's a little uncanny valley. The cartoon version's fine. And now they've created the necessary hype for the new version. So we watch it just to see what happens. There's a, a new uh, episode or a special of South Park that um, attacks uh, South Park's criticisms of Disney have been very funny historically, but specifically goes after Kathleen Kennedy, who's the head of the uh, Star Wars, which is under the Disney uh, empire as well. And uh, there's a lot of frustration with fans and even of general audiences for the trajectory. A lot of Star Wars has taken the new trilogy series being um, kind of widely um, despised, uh, I think. Mm -hmm. And people blaming her. So South Park has a pretty hilarious, it was going viral on social media. There's no way we can actually play it because um, it uses a lot of words we don't like to say on this show. But it was really funny, um, especially in the Cartman voice. Uh, I, I encourage uh, people to check that out and then don't listen to it on the loudspeaker at work. But uh, you know, it was a it was funny criticism of the direction that Disney has taken, just kind of cynically repurposing things without any creative thought, and then also, um, m you know, mo insulting and mocking the audiences for these projects by thinking the answer to everything is more um, to use, you know, the Daily Wire's parlance, more wokeness, more whatever you want to call it. But uh, anyway, a, a Snow idea. White make something original. Yeah, that's right. That's right. A Snow White for everyone. Um, maybe we need a, a libertarian. Um, Snow White. Um, I'm not sure what, what that would involve. Maybe the maybe the dwarves throw out Snow White and say, "Sorry, this is our house. You cannot transgress a, a, across our property, young lady. You know, go go to your own forest with squirrels singing. I don't know. I, I haven't thought it through, obviously, but I'll get to work on that script." Yeah, thanks, Robbie. I would like the dwarves to overthrow Snow White and and create a workers' cooperative oh, instead God. Uh, oh. for all of their mining. They keep the profits for all of the jewels that they mine. And uh, the queen, the evil queen, is also played by Ron DeSantis. And they they mm. discuss a little bit of the back and forth between Disney and him in the film as well. That would really enrich the dialogue. Your version sounds better, but I'm keeping Gal Gadot as my evil queen for sure. Uh, we will have more <laughs> rising right after this. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, protesters calling for an immediate ceasefire in Israel-Palestine just don't know what they're talking about. Let's listen in. People who are calling for a ceasefire now do not understand Hamas. That is not possible. It would be such a gift to Hamas because they would spend whatever time there was a ceasefire in effect 
rebuilding their uh, armaments, you know, creating stronger positions to be able to fend off uh, an eventual um, assault by the Israelis. So we're in a very different world. I don't think it had to be the world we're in, but that's where we are, and we've got to figure our way uh, forward through it. Now, a protester is demanding answers from Senator John Fetterman on why he won't support a ceasefire. This person was kicked out of a fundraising event over the weekend. Let's watch it go down. 10,000 people in Gaza have been killed, half are children. The Pope's calling for a ceasefire. The UN has called for it. I'm just asking you, you're a good guy. I voted for you. I know you're a nice guy. This is important. Here, can I give you a phone? Uh, yeah, it's been interesting to see Fetterman very full-throatedly um, in, in favor of um, giving Israel uh, whatever it wants uh, from the American taxpayers to continue this war effort, um, despite being, I think, perceived as a more left figure on a lot of economic issues, um, very much not in line with what um, the activist left feels about this issue. I'm not surprised by Hillary Clinton's position. I'm no, slightly that's surprised. not surprising. <laughs> I'm slightly surprised by Federman's position here. Uh, Hillary Clinton was caught on an audio tape back in 2006 talking to press where she said, I don't think we should have pushed for an election in Palestinian territories. She went on to say, if we were going to push for an election, we should have made sure that we did something to determine who was going to win. I think that summarizes how she feels about the Palestinian people. She doesn't even believe they deserve their right to self-governance. She really doesn't believe they de they're deserving of basic human rights. So I don't think anyone should listen to her when she says that people don't know what they're talking about when they're calling for a ceasefire. Does she think the 100-plus countries that just voted for the UN General Assembly, Assembly resolution for a ceasefire, that all of those State Departments don't know what they're talking about, that all of those ambassadors are not making a well-informed decision when they go to the floor of the United Nations to represent their countries? This is a, a terrible diplomatic choice on Hillary Clinton's part to say that the United States doesn't believe what any of you all are talking about. And me, as the former Secretary of State, thinks a ceasefire is a bad idea because that would allow Hamas, as she said, to stockpile armament to eventually defend themselves against an Israeli escalation and Israeli attack. That's absurd. She also doesn't believe they have a right to defend themselves. It's just disgusting what's coming out of Hillary Clinton's mouth. Now, Fetterman, uh, had this guy kicked out of his event. This is someone who voted for him, who paid for a ticket to go to the fundraiser, and Fetterman won't even answer a question. And I think it's because he doesn't have an answer at all. And this is someone who's supposed to be a progressive. Yeah, uh, Hillary Clinton has no credibility on this issue or foreign policy issues in general. Her judgment on this subject has been wrong over and over again. She was a famous vocal, one of the chief cheerleaders of the Iraq war on the Democratic side, a war that was totally unnecessary and destabilized the Middle East and actually emboldened terrorism and made the area less safe and negatively impacted U.S. Um, foreign policy, despite 
all of the blood, sweat, and tears we poured into that effort, an effort that also, also resulted in unfathomable death and destruction, including among innocent people. She was also the chief architect within the Obama administration as when she served as Secretary of State of the Libya intervention that saw the toppling and then horrific murder of uh, Muammar Gaddafi. That did not improve the situation in Libya. In fact, it spawned ISIS, was swiftly able to take over, then we had to wipe them out. So she has a, a long history of just un unbelievably bad judgment about foreign policy calls. So I, I certainly see why, um, if, if she's getting behind a ceasefire, it would make people say, uh, oh, is that, I, I didn't know Hillary Clinton supported it. It's probably a bad idea then. Uh, yeah, excuse I me, opposing I a ceasefire, not getting behind it, opposing it. <laughs> right. I don't think anyone who's out protesting a ceasefire will be swayed by Hillary Clinton saying they don't know what they're talking about. I think it's ridiculous to assume that a bunch of people that know they might face arrest and are so willing to go out and get arrested because they believe in their convictions that Hillary Clinton telling them they don't know what they're talking about will make them decide to stay home or change their views. I think that's absurd. But I think what's going on with Fetterman represents something that's happened a lot in the progressive faction of the Democratic Party. And it's where you have candidates like AOC who, when she was running, didn't mince words in an interview in 60 Minutes in 2018, the same year that the Israeli government killed over 31,000 Palestinians. She said that it was an occupation and that the occupation needs to end. Then she decided to vote present when the Congress was voting on whether or not to fund Israel's construction of their Iron Dome. The power that APAC and a lot of big money has uh, in influencing how progressives feel about Israel, how they decide to communicate about Israel, how they decide to vote about the, the U.S. support of Israel, it changes as soon as they get the threat of having a primary challenger of that APAC money. And they have to make this terrible calculation. Do I want to stay in my seat? I've been elected to represent people. I promise to get a lot of things done for the working class and stand on so many issues. Am I going to be able to scrap just this one issue and forego my values and views when it comes to how I feel about the Israeli occupation of Palestine and just do what AIPAC wants me to do so that I can keep my seat and not get millions funneled into a primary opposition? That's an awful consideration for a progressive member of Congress to make, but it's one they have to make all of the time. It's a big reason why Senator Nina Turner lost her race in Ohio, because her opposition was so heavily funded by AIPAC and pro-Israel PACs. It's really time we get money out of politics. And we have a Congress that, instead of having 97.9% of members of the House of Representatives uh, vowing their support to Israel, only nine members not vowing their support to Israel, when we have 41% of Americans saying that they don't want to send weapons to Israel, it's insane. It's not representative of our actual uh, base of the people that are supposed to be represented. And a big reason of that is PAC money being donated in these progressive primary challenger races. Yeah, I mean, there are some Republicans who feel have, you know, made no uh, secret that they don't want to continue this kind of funding. Thomas Massey voted against um, the uh, the declaration that uh, the speaker, the new speaker, put forth because it affirmed our support for continued aid. A lot of Republicans had broken ranks on Ukraine, and I suspect, and we now we hear Marjorie Taylor Greene said she would vote against aid package. Um, I think uh, there are Republicans who understand that a lot of their constituencies, and it's not about the morality of the, for Republicans, I don't think, it's not about the morality of Israel versus Palestine. It's not about um, being against 
Israel taking out a terrorist group. It's about spending American dollars in America, not being responsible for the national security problems of every other country on the earth, of knowing that we are just creating more problems for ourselves when we, when we intervene and get involved in regional, ethnic, and religious conflicts all over the globe, that that's not what the Ameri what American taxpayers want. They don't want their, their money spent overseas. And they would fe feel safer if um, a lot of our troops abroad were, you know, were not just like sitting ducks in bases in random places. Um, Senator Rand Paul had a bill to withdraw American troops from a base in Niger, um, and that was a, 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 a that attracted the support of both of some Republicans and some Democrats, unfortunately voted down by our, you know, forever war interventionist bipartisan consensus. So that is um, very always a source of frustration that, you know, even if we disagree about how these how I, these conflicts should be resolved or who's at blame or what tactics should be used there, I think there is a lot of agreement that. The, it should not broadly be the U.S.'s business to be more involved, to be caring more, to putting other countries before our own, and that, you know, that these governments can bear, can bear the responsibility themselves. I mean, with the Ukraine example, why, if it is such an issue for Europe, why are we the ones that have to fund it? Why isn't Germany stepping up? Why isn't the U.K. stepping up? Why is it always the U.S.? The American people feel like we're suckers. Our government is, is a government of suckers, and I think they're fed up with it. But we will see if—, um, if if opposition for uh, increased military funding um, picks up any steam among members of either party, frankly. More rising right after this. Some tragic news to get to. Friends star Matthew Perry passed away this past weekend at the age of 54 after apparently drowning, TMZ reports. Sources have told TMZ that Perry died at his own house after some physical activity Saturday morning. TMZ was told that Perry came home sometime in the morning on Saturday after playing two hours of pickleball, then sent his assistant out on an errand, and when the assistant returned shortly thereafter, he discovered Perry unresponsive and called 911. According to TMZ, it is unclear if what Perry was doing prior to his death that day played any role in his passing, and the investigation into his death is underway. Sources say he was found unresponsive in a jacuzzi at his home, and that there were no drugs found on the scene, nor foul play involved. So I think this death is, is tragic. He was really beloved by a lot of people. He was someone who dedicated his life to service. He's someone who struggled with substance abuse, and he said, uh, whenever someone comes up to me, an alcoholic or a drug addict, and they say, will you help me? I will always say, yes, I know how to do that. I'll do it for you, even if I can't always do it for himself, for myself, he said. And so this is really honorable work. He invested a lot of his own personal money into houses where people struggling with substance abuse could get sober. And this is what he says he wants to be remembered for. And I think that's really beautiful. Absolutely. Um, beloved figure to so many. Um, you know, Friends was a very generational um, television show. It was a big part of uh, people's lives, um, people my age and older and younger. Um, and he was uh, such a wonderful presence on that show. Uh, as you note, very open about his history of struggling with substance abuse, um, health issues, uh, et cetera. So uh, we have you know, no idea. And, and his ongoing struggle with those things, we have no uh, indication that that played any role in here. He'd had a history of medical problems and heart problems, and it, it, it could absolutely be a, um, under an accident, um, something just tragic hitting a man only, you know, 54. 
Um, these kinds of deaths always take us uh, take us by uh, surprise um, because people, um, you know, can live to a, a, a very ripe old age now, and it, it feels like we've been, um, in some sense, cheated of of what his contributions would have been um, over the subsequent de decades. So very sad, um, you know, seeing an outpouring on social media for um, how much uh, the character he played on Friends and on, on a lot of, it wasn't a one-hit wonder on all, all sorts of other programs uh, meant to people. His speaking, um, his book, um, very, you know, very. Very important figure, and um, this is truly very, very, very sad news. Yeah, he's someone that dedicated, you know, his personal life to an issue he cared a lot about. The Perry House is a house in Malibu, sober living for adult men. He dedicated a lot of his life to advocating for people who are struggling with substance abuse to get sober, and he did this through art as well. Uh, the End of Longing is a play that he made and produced, and it depicts him an exaggerated version of what he felt like he was when he was drunk. And as someone who knows so many people who have used substances and decided to get sober, it's just really beautiful that even if he admits, you know, I, I'm not perfect, I'm not fully able to get sober myself, but I'm going to help every single person that says they want to get sober. I think that's great. And I think it's a consequence of our lack of proper health care in this country that so many people end up using substances to address mental health issues. They end up self-medicating. And there's not a lot of sober living facilities supported by our healthcare system. It's become a, a philanthropic endeavor for people uh, like Matthew Perry to invest so much of their personal money and their life into making sure that there's a place for people to fall back on when they decide to get sober and receive the health help that they need. Uh, it's a little bit crazy that we encourage so much drinking in the United States, knowing how bad it is for our lives and bodies. It's kind of been the drug of choice uh, to let loose from all of the stress we feel in our daily lives. And Matthew Perry is one of the good people that took that issue uh, in his own hands and decided to address it himself. And he said that upon being dead, he knows that a lot of people will talk about his personal life and talk about friends. Uh, but he really wants people to talk about that. So I feel an obligation to do so because it's really important work. Mm. Uh, his family said, Matthew brought so much joy to the world, both as an actor and a friend. You all meant so much to him, and we appreciate the tremendous outpouring of love. Rest in peace. We'll have more Rising right after this. Good news, Democrats. You can put your 2024 fears to rest, because Kamala Harris can assure you that Joe Biden very much alive. Let's listen. We were talking to some Democratic donors. Mm -hmm. And they have told us that should something befall President Biden, and he is not able to run, mm -hmm. that there would be a free-for-all for who would run as president. You are in the spot that that would be unnatural for you to step up, but we're hearing from donors that they would not naturally fall into line. Why is that? Well, first of all, I'm not going to engage in that hypothetical. Because Joe Biden is very much alive and running for re-election. So but you do are. know. I mean, that is a concern and, and a legitimate concern, I would say. I hear from a lot of different people a lot of different things. Yes, Vice President Kamala Harris sat down for an interview with 60 Minutes this week where she was grilled on President Biden's poor polling leading into the 2024 election. Let's listen to more. A recent CBS poll found that at the beginning of... President Biden's term, 70% of young people, people under 30, said he was doing a good job. Mm -hmm. Now it's less than 50%. Why is that? What's going on? 
If you poll how young people feel about the climate and the warming of our planet, it polls as one of their top concerns. When we talk about what we are doing with student loan debt, polls very high. Uh, the challenge that we have as an administration is we got to let people know who brung it to them. <laughs> That's our challenge. But it is not that the work we are doing is not very, very popular with a lot of people. Per the vice president, concerned Democratic supporters need to just trust the process. Do you have to ask yourself why are people seeming not to hear our message? I look at it more as let's keep getting out there and as with any election, we've got to make our case to the American people. That's part of our responsibility. And that's this process. And that's what it is. And that's a fair process. I think the strongest message the Biden administration is sending is how they're governing right now. Kamala Harris has been tasked with handling the issue of immigration, has done a terrible job at that. People see what the Biden administration is doing. They see how student loan debt cancellation has gone. They see how the passage of, of signature climate legislation has gone. He's uh, overpromised and underdelivered. So I think the message has been sent and received. And them saying anything on social media isn't going to change that. Yeah, it's funny how she frames that. Um, he, he points out the lagging uh, approval numbers among young people, and then she says, but young people care a lot about the climate. Young people care a lot about student loans. So, well, that's true. That means they don't support what they don't think the Biden administration has given them enough on those two fronts. Now, I actually disagree with young people who feel those ways about those issues. Um, I'm no. not Pers yes, uh, shocker there. So I wouldn't want to see those policies come into existence, and I don't know if he would, you know, gain more voters than he loses, particularly on the student loans front. But that's a that's a different question. If she thinks their problem is that um, young people are very progressive on a bunch of issues and they want to get very progressive young people on their side, they're clearly failing. If that's the strategy, if that's the tactic, it's just inarguable that it's not working. And probably if the strategy is to lean on young people, frankly, what they're doing with Israel-Palestine is also not going to be um, nearly good enough, um, you know, regardless of the general sentiment. It, it's clear um, younger people are very vocally strongly interested in uh, Biden more forcefully condemning what the Israeli government is doing, um, which he's not, he, I, don't, I don't think he's at all doing that to the satisfaction of your young progressives. So again, if you're, countering, if you're counting on these voters to rescue your presidency, um, I think you're pretty screwed. I don't know. It sounds to me like fake news when Kamala Harris says she's not going to entertain that hypothetical. It's your job to entertain that hypothetical. You're the vice president. A part of the job is that if the president dies, you step in. It doesn't really reassure the American people. If we're like, well, if Joe Biden's not around, are you ready to govern? And she's like, I won't answer that. Because it sounds like the answer is no. It sounds like Kamala Harris isn't ready to govern. Of course they have contingency plans. Of course they talk about this behind closed doors. And we all know this. Kamala Harris knows this. The man she is answering the questions of knows this. And it sounds really fake when she gives this diplomatic response of, I'm not going to entertain this. There's a reason you want to be vice president. It's because it's the number two spot. Uh, I think it's ridiculous to assume she's she hasn't thought about it. They don't have plans in place. Uh, I can understand wanting to reassure people that Biden is healthy and well, but also they want to be reassured that the VP is ready to serve if necessary. And she did not give the American people that. And to say that I think our voters will come around, that is not a satisfactory response. 
she should have said, you know, we're running on a platform of X, Y, and Z. And to all of the viewers watching this, if you're still on the fence, we are going to get these things done. This is what we've gotten done so far. Bidenomics, blah, 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 whatever you want to say. But don't just say, I think they'll get the message. What is the message? You're doing press right now. You're the vice president. Now's your chance. Tell the people what it is. But we don't have one. Yeah, you're right that it's crazy if she's not thinking about it. Joe Biden is only the oldest president ever and in kind of obvious physical and potentially mental decline. And even if he was in tip-top shape, we've had well, we've had 45, 46 presidents. We've had, how many of them have have not finished out their term because they died in office? This was um, uh, William Henry Harrison, Lincoln, McKinley, uh, Garfield, Harding, Kennedy. Maybe I'm missing someone. Did I say Taylor? Did I say I can't remember. Six or seven. That's like. You got to help me here. You know how bad I am at math. What is six yeah. of forty-five is a is a not negligible percentage of times the VP has had to take over, right? And then there's of course there's the time Nixon uh, resigned and so forth. So it's not a it's not a totally out there experience for the VP for whatever reason to have to step up and uh, and finish out the term. So this whole no that could never happen. I'm not thinking about it. Is kind of boggling. The mind. Yeah, he's alive. He's also undergoing an, an impeachment inquiry. There's a reason Nixon didn't serve again. I mean, he bowed out, but yeah. also presidents being impeached is a big problem here, especially for Biden. I don't know if Mike Johnson has the evidence he says he does, but that's also at play here. But their strategy is to just not acknowledge anything, to just say nothing at all. Even the press secretary, it's almost like they get behind the scenes and they're like, all right, as little information as possible, give them no hope. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I think you're right to not rule out that we could have a JFK-like scenario here. Uh, I was assuming you would talk about presidents that have gotten sick or have gotten impeached. But I do think, you know, assassination's always a problem. I was counting them all. Presidents, Anytime the president doesn't, doesn't finish, uh, finish the term. Um, so it's something yep. to be aware of. So anyway, yeah, we, you know, that. we've been criticized. We've been making fun of Kamala Harris on the show. Um, a lot because she just doesn't seem to have this um, any kind of constituency or any kind of, of support. I mean, say what, what you will about Joe Biden. He is, and his declining poll numbers, but he's more popular than, than a, a lot of other kind of leading Democrats right now, including his VP. And that's going to be amazing because let's presume he does finish out the term. I, I, you know, I think that's likely. Um, she is going to be in a position to be the standard bearer. She's going to have to fight for it. But there will be a lot of establishment support behind her merely because she was the VP. That's how it goes. Yeah, I really think in a race that's RFK Jr., Donald Trump, and Joe Biden, or and Kamala Harris rather than Joe Biden, whether he decides to bow out, he decides to retire, God forbid something happens to him, we don't wish ill on anyone. But let's imagine a world where, you know, they decide, all right, Biden, we've had enough gaffes in public. We really think it's best as a party if Kamala Harris steps in. I don't think Kamala Harris fares well against an RFK Jr. Donald Trump presidency. I think RFK Jr. might start climbing in the polls. I would love to see what a debate like that would look like. And we know Donald Trump has his ongoing cases. It would be a pretty insane world if we had a Kamala Harris Trump RFK Jr. presidency. But I honestly am not hopeful for Kamala Harris in that case. Presidential campaign. That, that would be truly crazy if we had a presidency with the three of them sharing the uh, sharing yes, the presidential seat. Presidential campaign. Yes. <laughs> but, a they have to run all policies by each other. That would be. Uh, I think that's just what happens if you go to hell. All right, yes. that does it yes. for us for today. Uh, thank you for tuning in, Jessica. Thanks for being here. I know you'll be back with us later in the week. 
Uh, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye. Bye, y'all. -bye. Bye,